Now, so far, the last couple of weeks, we were off last week because Brother Boffman was here, and he did a great job, and uh, appreciate him. Uh, he's a great guy, and uh, I just think the world of him, and I was glad that him and his wife could come and be part of our church service here. And, but up to that point, we have focused on, out of the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 24, we've been really kind of looking at some things um, focused on uh, those Proverbs about the men who, uh, in the Old Testament, Saul in particular, but then in the New Testament, uh, we have made a spiritual application, talking about men who want to defeat you by taking the most important possession that you have as a child of God, and that is the Bible you have. I cannot think of anything that is more important uh, in all of this world than the Bible that God has given us. You know, somebody said one time that if you took all the literature that man has written in the history of the world, that you could put it in a, in a stack uh, that would cover uh, the whole landmass of the United States of America. And then you could continue to stack it, and it would go out past the orbit of the moon, which is 250,000 miles. That's how much man has written in his time on Earth. And if we could actually do that, and we could put uh, all that material together, uh, I want to tell you, once you got it all in place and it was all piled up, you could take everything that man ever wrote and you could judge it in the light of one book that God wrote. And that's why the Bible is so vital to you. The vital is, to, is vital to you as an individual. The Bible is vital to you as a parent. The Bible is invited to you, uh, valuable to you as a husband and wife. It's invaluable to you for your children. It'll change every aspect of your life. Most people don't see the value of the Bible until their world falls apart. And, and that's okay to an extent. The problem with that is sometimes the world falls apart so much that the Bible can't fix anything because you're too far gone. But the Bible is what you need. And uh, we looked at it as the honeycomb that God brought down to man that he gave to you and me. I think the greatest book in the Bible, if I just wanted a capsule view of the Christian life, you wouldn't think this, but I think the greatest single book in the Bible that just kind of portrays that out is the book of Exodus. When you look at the book of Exodus, you'll find that in the first seven or eight chapters, Israel's in the, in, in the bondage of Egypt under a man named Pharaoh, who's a type of the devil. And it's a picture of you and me, and we were unsaved. And then they cry out to God, and God sent them a deliverer. Now, in the story, the deliverer was Moses. But do you know there was a day, and you and I were under the shackles of Egypt? Amen. You realize there was a day when the Pharaoh of this old world, the devil, put us under hot bondage? Amen. And in your life, if you're saved this morning, you know how you got saved? You cried out. Amen. And God sent you a deliverer. Amen. And the Bible says that there's one greater than Moses, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you know what happens in Exodus chapter 12, uh, they come out of Egypt. How did they come out? By the blood of a lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel up there, the door, and he brought them out of Egypt. That's a picture of you and I putting the blood uh, over your sins and then coming out of the world. It's an incredible thing. And uh, it was the blood of a lamb. It was a lamb that was innocent, without spot, that was slain, much like the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that was a lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. Once that happens and they go on their journey, this is where the story really comes in. 
almost every chapter, sometimes multiple chapters on the same event, will show you every picture of your salvation, what it needs to be. When they came out, they went through the Red Sea, and they got baptized. The next chapter talks about that they're sanctified, they're set apart from the rest of the world. And chapter by chapter, and in Exodus chapter 16, once they come out of the world, once, they, once they're on their way, once they're going through those things, and, and in Exodus chapter 16, he brings the manna from heaven to them. A picture of the Word of God. They were in a wilderness, the wilderness of sin, and there was nothing, no water was there, no food was there. Nothing was there that would sustain them. And it's a picture of you and me after we get saved. You may not know this for sure yet, but I want to tell you right now, if you're saved, the world can't sustain you. You think it can, and you fool yourself into thinking it can, but in reality, you'll wind up at the end of your life empty. What did God do? Supernaturally, he brought the word of God to them. They didn't find it in a cave by the Dead Sea. They didn't find it in some dusty library that some unsaved archaeologist said, oh, look, I found the very original words of God. No, no. God brought it right to where they were. And I want to say to you this morning on the authority of the word of God, if you have a King James Bible in your lap, you have the absolute perfect word of God that supernaturally God brought down, preserved, and gave to you. And the souls of this life want to take that from you. The souls of life want to take that away from you. We looked at Saul, and we saw how in 1 Samuel 14 and 15, doctrinally he's a picture of the Antichrist. Historically, he's the worst king that Israel ever had, but inspirationally, in a practical way, he's a picture of many pastors today. Uh, we, we, uh, he represents men in the ministry who have, as the Bible says, a form of godliness. But they absolutely have a form of godliness. But the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 5 that they, they deny the very power which is the word of God in your life and my life. And last week, we, we saw, the last time we were together, we saw how this wicked man, and we defined it as not just the, the Antichrist, but the Bible said there was many Antichrists who take the word of God from you. And I showed you how that he will attack the nation of Israel in two basic areas when we studied it last time together. The first one was the land. He wanted to take the land that God had given them. That was their inheritance. The second thing that he wanted to take from them was the city of Jerusalem. That was their place of rest. And inspirationally, I told you how this all applies to you and me because these same two areas that he went after in Israel in a physical sense will be the exact same two areas in a practical spiritual sense that he will try to destroy in you. The wicked man will, will take, uh, come up against, verse 15, he'll come up against and try to take your inheritance. He'll try to take your garments. He'll try to take your crown. And then he'll come to the place and try to take the place of rest that will spoil you. And the place of rest for the child of God is the, is the word of God and the church that God has given you. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 22, there's a great model 
And again, you wouldn't think it would be back in 1 Samuel. You would think it would be in the Pauline epistle somewhere, in the book of Acts with Antioch, the church there. But it's not. God sets these little places way out in the Bible so that when you study it, you find them. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, we have David. And David has got his own problems at this time. He's running from Saul. But he, he goes down into a cave. And it's called the Cave of Adullam. And when all the people around heard that David was down into a cave, the Bible says that they went down to be with him. And they saw uh, that David was, they knew his relationship with God. And they wanted to be there. And the Bible says in that passage that everyone that was distressed, everyone that was in debt, everyone that was discontented found their way to this cave. And the Bible says it was about 400 people. Now for me, that's a great model. Because I think that that's about the size of of a church should get before you start losing the family atmosphere and the family pro- and the and the and the closeness and the oneness that you can have. And that's a great model. And it shows that David is a great contrast as a pastor to Saul. And I'm going to show you that by the time we get to the end this morning. David was a man who was after God's own heart and he had his issues. But he found when he, he finds that cave and everybody knew that that's where, if you were discontented and you had issues and you had problems, that's where they needed to be. And verse 15 says, the man of sin, whether in the Old Testament or today, the people who want to take your Bible from you, this says the dwelling of the righteous and the spoiling of his resting place. In our study about Saul, Jonathan, and the honeycomb, there were two key words. And if you remember, I told you those two key words were found in 1 Samuel 14, verse 24, and then again in verse 29. It was the word distressed and the word troubled. And here today, some what, four or five thousand years after the story back there in the Old Testament, here today is where we find God's people. God's people who ought to be living above the circumstances. God's people who ought to be done with the world. God's people who ought to be done with all of the things that wanted to destroy them. Once they get saved, they want to bring those things back into their life thinking that that it, it can be a counterbalance. And all it does is wind up distressing us and troubling us. And here we find God's people today who have no rest in their life, and have lost their inheritance. Now, I stated a couple of weeks ago how that Israel never got the rest. They did for a short period of time of 40 years. But we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of Israel's history. We're talking about from when God brought them into the land and Joshua all the way up to where we're at today. They've never had the rest only for 40 short years under Solomon, and then it was gone. You also see, when you study the development of the nation of Israel, that it was a process that God wanted to get them to his rest. And I want to tell you something. We talk about discipleship one, discipleship two, Thursday night, Sunday morning, the, the putting in discipleship three, maybe if we can get it all together. 
Everything we do is by design, just like the nation of Israel with God was to get them to their rest. Everything we do, everything the church should do, everything we do is a process that gets you to that rest in your Christian life. I used to run. I ran from the cops, I ran from my parents, I ran from God, I ran from everybody. I used to be a runner. I got it back from my old airborne days, you know, where you ran everywhere. And I, I used to love to run. I can't do it anymore because of my back, you know, and my surgery. And, and, uh, but uh, I walk now. And, uh, you know, I'm the biggest hit over John Knox Village you ever saw in your life. I can clean those shuffleboards off like they never saw. I even have a special pair of shoes that have Velcro straps on them when I go over there. But, you know, Bible likens Christianity to running a race. And if you're any kind of runner, a long-distance runner, anyhow, not maybe a sprinter like Alex, But if you're a long-distance runner like Jamie, you're a long-distance runner. You run every morning at, you know, 3.30 in the morning. You learn while you're running long distance. Even while you're running, you learn how to rest. You can actually discipline yourself to rest while you're running. And that's what Christianity should be. We're in a race. We're never to stop that race. And when you get the rest, you don't stop. You just learn within the race how to rest. And I want to talk about that today. I want to try to help you. Israel never got it. Hebrews 3, uh, verse 7 uh, through 11, he says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost uh, saith today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, Prove me and saw my works 40 years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart and they have no, uh, not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Now you can read that little verse right there and I'll tell you right now, the key back there to them is the same key to you of getting God's rest. The reason why they didn't get it and the reason why you won't get it. Here it is. They always do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. We're just, we're just dead set on doing it our way, aren't we? Doesn't matter how much I preach to you, Bible study, discipleship, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. As human beings, we are just determined that we are going to do it our way. And then wonder why the rest never comes. There it is. He said in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest. Now there's a second great key. The first problem why we don't have the rest is because we want to do it our way. The second reason is because the rest is found in the promises. The rest is not found in coming to church. The rest is not found in you going back in a bookstore and buying a King James Bible. Those, those are two good things to do. Hey, there's lots of people to have a King James Bible that have no rest. There's lots of people to come to a good church, this church, that have no rest. The key to you getting the rest is the promises of cease doing it your way and doing it his way. Now, God's rest for the nation of Israel was in the promises he gave them. Verse 1. 
And we know that was the land that God gave them. And it's in the Bible, the land their inheritance was called many things. It was called the land of milk and honey. This is where God wants you to live today. He wants you, spirit, to live in a land of milk and honey. You're living in a land of sour grapes and cabbage. It's called the land of milk and honey. It was called Canaan's land. Now, when you find that title in the Bible, that's a picture, Canaan was the Canaanites, that's a picture of you coming out and, 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 and being any saved where that, the world was once belonged to Canaan's, now it belonged to Israel. And this world and everything in it once was against you and after you, and now God has made you the master of it through the promises of the Word of God. It's called Beulah Land. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 14. Only place in the Bible. Great song. Beulah land. Great song. Somebody ought to sing that. Beulah land. Everybody, everybody sees that, doesn't know what Beulah means. They think it's some woman that was a cook for your mother or your father. No, no. Beulah means married to the Lord. And the nation of Israel and the land was married to the Lord. And you and I someday are going to be married to the Lord. And you know how we get married to the Lord? Through the promises that God gave us. And then it's called the promised land. It was their inheritance. But to keep the inheritance and the land and for getting kicked out by all the other nations who represent the world, they had to keep the promises. And the reason why they got kicked out in 606 and 2721 is because they failed to keep the promises. And the reason why you and I go through the heartache we go through and lose the blessings of God and and ultimately the inheritance that God has for us, but the rest that God has for you now, same reason, you won't keep the promises. Proverbs 24, 15 shows how the wicked man came after them and took their Bible from them to destroy them. And now there had been no rest for Israel for over 3,000 years. And many of you have had no rest in your life for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, maybe more. And our, for you and me, our promises are the spiritual side of things and are found in the Word of God. And the rest that God has for us will be found in two things. Getting saved and getting part of His body and making yourself part of the local New Testament church that God put into effect in the book of Acts. And then the Word of God. Letting this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, it, it goes without saying, and I, and I know you know this. We are in a warfare. And I also want you to know, and I know you know this is true, because many of you are slugging it out with me, and I love you for that and appreciate for that. But you know as well as I do that sometimes we get weary in the battle. And we need a place to rest. Amen. Bible talks about the renewing of your mind. My job as a pastor is many things. But three particular areas concerning our sermon this morning and what I want to talk about, my job is a threefold job. One, I am to prepare you for battle. Two, I am to lead you into battle. 
Now that all sounds good. I want to prepare for battle and I'm going to lead you. I'll be the last first boots on the ground. The last. That sounds wonderful. But the third aspect of a pastor, yes, I'm to prepare you for the battle. Yes, I'm to lead you in battle. But then I'm supposed to prepare also a place for you to rest when you get weary in the battle. Most pastors won't do that. They want to work you. They want to use you. They want everything from you. But when you burn out, and I've seen it all my life. I've seen good people go into Baptist churches where all they did was put them to work and burn them out. And then when they burn them out by never giving them anything or helping them, then when they have the audacity, when they burn them out, they blame them for being unspiritual. You'll find your rest today in the place of commitment and blessings and the Word of God that God has given to you. You know, the church should be the safe haven for you like it was for the 400 down at the cave of Adullam. I tell people all the time. I've, I've told people this. I've told guys this. I've told ladies this. I've had people come in, you know, and they've had issues. And I understand that everybody's got a history. Everybody has issues. And as long as the person wants to do what's right and they want to change and be everything that God wants them to be, hey, you know what? That's all I look for. And I, and I know, and I know this is true, I, I know that uh, uh, this church should be a place uh, for people to rest who are beat up. Some of God's people, you got beat up by other Baptist churches. And you got beat six ways from Sunday. And it wasn't all your fault. Most Sometimes it wasn't any of your fault. But you got beat up. You were a, you were a, a threat to the pastor or some leadership in the church, and so they targeted you and, and, uh, and they beat you up. I get that. Hey, it's tough getting beat up when you can't fight back sometimes. I understand that. Some of you got beat up by the world. Some of you had a divorce and you got beat up. Not necessarily by your ex-wife, but you know what I'm talking about. You're beat up from the world system. Some of you come through some tough times in life and it's beat you up. And I, I have people come in all the time and when they come and see me, and many of them have, the first thing I tell them was when they tell me their story, and I know where they're coming from, and I can empathize with it, because I, I know, I know what the world can do. And I always tell them, this church will never hurt you. This church will never hurt you. If I find out that there's some woman or man in this church who steps out purposely to hurt you, they'll have to deal with me. And I don't have any. I don't think. If, if I do, you're, you're keeping a very low profile, which is very smart on your part. This church is not going to hurt you. We're not going to talk about you. We're not going to castigate you. We're not going to blame you for anything. Uh, We all have a history. We all have our problems. And uh, you may have went through some tough times in life that that we haven't went through. But you know what? Only by the grace of God that we didn't. And we have a tendency to look at people sometime when they come into a church, not this church, but other churches, and they're always looking down on people. Somebody will come in that's got a, some problems in their life or some, and they'll always be looking it down on them. Well, and, I, and my advice to somebody like that is simply this. You know what? You didn't look too hot the first time God laid eyes on you. Amen. And I tell them, this church will never hurt you. But I also tell them this. But you may hurt yourself. When I say this church won't hurt you, I don't mean by that you can do whatever you want to do. And this church will never hurt you, but you will hurt yourself. And I've had many of them come to the place that told me one thing, but all the time the guy or the gal had a hidden agenda 
deep down deep and dark. And they wind up hurting themselves. And in every case, I've never had anybody that ever went through that said, well, you know what, that church was really good and, and uh, it was me. Never. It's always our fault. But that's okay. As long as I know the truth, I don't really care what you think. But the bottom line is, this church is here for your rest. I will see to that. I will stake everything I am and preach on that. I will take you no matter what condition you're in with very few exceptions. And I'll help you get wherever God wants you to be. Now Israel never got that rest except that short 40 years. And God's people today, they, they just never will get the rest. Now today, I, I want to read Proverbs 24, verses 19 and 20. And then I want to I make some comments about how to find God's rest in your life. Now here's what he says. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 19 and 20. Fret not thyself because of evil men, neither be thou envious at the wicked. For there shall be no reward to evil man. The candle of the wicked shall be put out. Paul Jones, would you ask God's blessing uh, on the sermon this morning? And I see that you got a hat just like your wife. I think that's good. The, the husband and wife that wear hats together, their marriage never lasts. I just want you to know that. Go ahead, buddy. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Honestly, I think you guys look cute in your hats. I really do. <laughs> he says, fret not thyself because of evil men. You know what? We as God's people, we fret about everything today. Amen. We really do. And you know, fret is to worry. Fret is to be afraid. And, you know, the God's people will fret about everything today, and that's because they really have no rest in their life. They have no refuge. They have no comfort. Because they have, for most of them, they have no truth. And even the ones that have the truth, they, they don't apply it the way they should. When we got into Christianity in the New Testament, moving up past the 1800s and the 1950s, 60s, we developed a whole new um, vocabulary of words that you never find in the Bible. Maybe you missed that, but I never found in the Bible the word anxiety. God's people are full of anxiety. I never found in the Bible the word stress. You go to the doctor and he says, well, your, your problem is stress-related. And you say, yeah, she is. It's my mother-in-law. How did you know that? But anyway, we find emotional issues today. I've never seen a Christianity where depression was more relevant today. Uh, you know what? It's a thing where, and, and, and you know, a lot of us are like Asa. Asa had a disease in his feet. And instead of going to God, he went to the physicians and he wound up dying. 
And that's a picture of his feet, is a picture of our walk with God. And many times when we have a, a spiritual issue, we won't take it to God. And we take it to the world, the psychiatrist, the doctors, the Prozac, the antidepressants, all those things that, that will never fix your problem. And they know it won't fix your problem because they don't know how to fix your problem. So they just put you on something that will slow down, slow you down, and won't fix anything. The real fix is always found in the Word of God. You know, depression, you know, two men in the Bible that are great contrast. You have Saul, who we've been talking about, and you have David, who we've been talking about. You realize that both of them went through depression? See, I don't want to tell you that depression is just for you out of fellowship with God. David got, was, was a saved man, and he fell into depression. And it's not the issue that they both got depressed. It's the issue is how each one of them dealt with it. Amen. Saul dealt with it by going to the witch at Endor. David dealt with it by taking it back to God. It, 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 everything in life, I don't care what it is, you and I can have the same problems as the world. We will. There are no Christian problems. There's worldly problems that Christians get into. And the real key is not did you get into it. The real key is what are you going to do to get out of it? Amen. You're going to stay with the witches at Endor? Or the werewolf on Friday night? Are you going to take it to the throne of God? And in our text today, the, one, the reason he's saying here we don't have to fret over these things is because, as I've said many, many times, nobody out there is going to hurt you if you stay with the promises. One, it says that they'll lose their reward. That's their crowns, their garments, and their millennial inheritance. And the second thing is the Bible says that their light will go out. Their candle. No light of their own. And I want to tell you something. The worst thing that you could ever find in your life is a Christian who doesn't have any light. The second worst thing is a church that doesn't have any light. And the worst, worst, worst thing is a pastor who doesn't have any light. And yet, you'd have to be blind not to see when he talks about the candle going out, not to see the reference to the Laodicean church age. Why? Over there in, in, in Revelation, it talks about that there's seven periods of church history. And each period of church history has a candle that represents that church period. It's built on the Moriah back in the Old Testament of that seven-pronged candlestick, which pictures the seven spirits of God. And it tells us in the early part of Revelation that, that uh, these, these seven periods of church history... He says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, uh, or excuse me, he says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 15, he says that we're, there was a warning that God will remove your candlestick out of its place. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. It means you're going to lose your light. I know lots of God's people that are saved and on their way to heaven, they haven't got the light and left out of a blind mosquito. They have no light whatsoever. He says in Revelation 1.20, The mystery of the seven stars which thou stawest on my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest 
are the seven churches. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, in the Laodicean church period, the Bible says that God spews the angel and the candlestick out of his mouth. And you have seven periods of church history. We're the last period, and we're the most messed up, screwed up bunch because of we have lost the Bible, exactly as Proverbs 24 says. And you know what's wrong with the church today? You know what's wrong with Christians today? You know what's wrong with pastors today who stand in the pulpit every Sunday and give you some mealy mouth message that they put together? Uh, I'll tell you what the problem is. They got no light. They couldn't take you into the depth of the Word of God if you put a gun to their head. They got no light because in this Laodicean God-awful mess that we call Christianity, God put the candle out. To find an example of that back in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And I always use this as a great example for you young men and young ladies that want to go into the ministry. It's the only place in the Old Testament that I know in that chapter that he just lifts that out and puts it into a context like the church age. He says there's no open vision. That's totally, completely against everything else in the Old Testament. God wasn't speaking through prophets. He says that God only reveals himself in that short period of time through the Word of God, just like today. And we find Samuel, as a young man, put into the temple of God, picture of the church, which is in total disarray under Eli. And yet God gets him to be the greatest prophet the world, that Christianity or Israel ever saw. But in the process, while he's in there, and the Bible says in the book of Leviticus that that candle in the tabernacle was never to go out. And in that period of time, the Bible says, the candle went out. It's a picture of Israel not having any light. But you know what the church age is today? It's a church age of the Laodicea that has no light. You know what a lot of God's people's lives are like today? You're saved, you're on your way to heaven. You don't have any light. I'm telling you. And how are you going to have rest when you have no light? Now, let me speak to you from a personal aspect here. In my own personal life, I've cataloged every definitive verse in the Bible. I told you this Thursday night when we were talking about some of these things that deal with me in my life. And I give them to you like in people ministry and the things that we go through. And, you know, I took 10, 12, I don't remember. I took at least 10, 12, 13, 14 years of my life. There's 31,102 verses in a King James Bible. There's 1,189 chapters. There's 66 books. And I went through every one of those, detailed them out, took me 10, 12, 15 years to do it. I'm still working on it. And I found every definitive chapter on everything that I needed for me. I made up the promises and the principles for you and for me. All promises are principles, but not all principles are promises. You have to learn to separate what really comes home to you that you want to take and put into your promise book versus what is just a general truth that states a principle. Now for me, my own per I can't speak for you and I wouldn't presume to, but for my personal life, my passage and my verses on my personal rest is found in one of the great Psalms in all of the Bible. Now let me be the first one to say, I wish my rest was 100% perfect. I wish that I didn't get anxiety about things. I do. I I'm human like anybody else. I wish I wouldn't get mad and cuss, but I do. 
Amen. Thank you, brother. Us cussers got to stick together. I ain't kidding you. I'm human just like, but I want to tell you something. I understand where the principles are. And in your life and my life, the rest is only going to come into being. Hey, come on. Let's, can we be honest? Do you not get tired of the chaos in your life? Amen. Come on. Do, you, do, do we not just get tired? Is there going to come a place in your life when you just say, I can't do this anymore? I mean, don't, don't, don't we get tired of the chaotic problems that we have? Amen. That, Amen. may I just add this, that are stupid to begin with? Amen. He says, thou will keep him in perfect peace. Where did that verse go? Who's mine? is stayed on thee. That's where it went. I want to get ahead of myself here. I got some good preaching coming your way here in just a second. In your Bible, it's simply titled, A Psalm of David. And I guess if anybody needed rest, it was David and me. And it's Psalms 37. I want you to turn over there. I want to read verses 1 through 7 and make a few comments for you. And I catalog this in my Bible, in my life, in my world, is my process of getting God's rest in my life. Now, a lot of things I will say, I will say, I could have said this, the process of you getting God's uh, rest in your life, uh, but uh, I I didn't say it that way. Because I'm not responsible for you. I'm only responsible for me. And this is the process of me getting God's rest in my life. Just read it together. Psalms 37, a Psalm of David. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust in him also, and he shall bring it to pass, and he shall bring forth the righteous as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Verse 7, rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Now, let me just open this by saying this. Rest for the believer is the mark of spiritual maturity. The Christian life will not get easier. We make a mistake many times when somebody gets saved or we slap them on the back and tell them all their problems are over. That is not true. Your eternity problem is solved, but you have to face every day now. And the Christian life will not get easier. You will find that it will get harder And what we do as we grow and we mature, we learn in the midst of the conflict to trust the promises of God against the adversary that's coming against us, and that is where we rest. Learning to rest while we're running. He says, fret not thyself because of evildoers, 
Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and withereth like the green herb. Now you can see the similarities between Psalm 37.1 and our text today in, in Proverbs 4, uh, 24. Fret not, be not envious, no reward. You can see the connection between the two. Now I want to walk you through the process here. I want you to begin to see that. And I want you to begin to see how this thing works and how it, it puts together and uh, in, in how it works. He says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the work of iniquity, so they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. All right, here we go. Verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Now, without a doubt, the key to any relationship will be one area. It will be trust. If there is no trust, listen to me, if there is no trust, there is no relationship. You can kid yourself all you want. You can pretend it is okay. Bottom line is this. If there's no trust value system, then there's no relationship. And that trust for a child of God has to be in the promises that God has given you. Two things will build trust. And I know, I know, we go through things in life where we violate trust and we want to earn trust back. Your kids do it all the time. Adults do it. I get it. I understand. We're all guilty of it. Let me tell you right now, there's only two things that will ever restore trust in any relationship, any children, anything. And you can either put it into your kid's life or not. You can either do it yourself or not. Doesn't matter. But you'll never restore anything going your way. And that is time, and that is consistency. Over the time, seeing us being consistent with the promises that we make. Back in the bookstore, I have one in my briefcase back there. I was going to bring it up, and I forgot it. We sell those little promise books. And I think they're one of the greatest little books that we've ever had. And uh, in the front, they have a they have a whole list of problems that can come into our life with a page, and you turn there, and then they give you eight or nine promises for that particular problem. It's, it's kind of like a, 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 a ready, I need a help problem verse, give me something here. It, they're great. We pass them out all the time, and they're incredible. But it, the, the trust that we have with God and the rest that we have has to go through the promises. A promise is something that God gives you when you really need it. And then you never forget it. And as you grow and mature, you add those things to what he's already given you, to what he keeps bringing into your life, for what he's done for you. And, you know, you've you got to keep taking the promises that God gives you and keep them. You don't go through your Christian life getting through the problems that you just got through yesterday, forgetting what God did for you. The promises and the key to the promises and the key to your maturity is how is God going to get me through what i got to face tomorrow, what I don't know. You just look back on what he got you through in the last five years of your life that you do know. But the problem is we forget. We don't catalog them. Every one of you ought to have a book of promises of the things that God has come through for you. I don't mean necessarily a notebook, though many of you do. I don't mean that you can put them in your Bible. I don't care. But you have to have some tangible thing that you can go to 
or as the Bible says in our three infirmities, you will forget. You'll forget the years, Psalm 77, you'll forget the works, and you'll forget the wonders. Now verse 1 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Getting God's promises, the definitive passage for that is Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. That's it. It's the acknowledgement of God in your life. I believe that most of you are saved, and I believe that most of you have God in your life. But you know what our problem is? We don't have any acknowledgement of God in our life. We have an acceptance of God in our life. We have a resemblance of God in our life. But we don't have any acknowledgement of God in our life. And that's the issue. You know, trust in God's Word, trust in the promises of God, just doesn't happen. Trust gets developed as the relationship and maturity develop. And that gets developed by what you do for Him that's good as the verse says. Trust in the Lord and do good. 99% of God's people will do nothing for God. And even the ones that do do something for Him, in most cases, fail to remember the promises that He gave us. And we come to the place that because we don't do anything for Him, there's nothing Him coming through for us. So your spiritual bank account this morning is absolutely empty. It's just filled with the things that are in there from going your way and not His. Look at verse 4. The next thing he says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Now, here's the question today. This is an honest, open question for you and me. As a child of God, here it comes. As a child of God, what do you delight yourself in today? No psychologist, psychiatrist, marital counselor who dibble-dabbles in the Bible in the world will ever make your problems as simple as the Bible will. Your Christian life comes down to one simple basic thing and all your problems that you've got come down to one thing. What are you delighting yourself in? How much simpler does it get? We all have the desires of our heart. You ever ask yourself why some realize those desires and some don't? The verse is very clear that the realization of a desire will be based on our delights in life. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 and 3 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. You take any two Christians. I have them in my church today. I've seen them all my Christian life. You have one who is unhappy, unfulfilled, never satisfied, always getting themselves in a jam. And times they get mad at the church, mad at me, mad at God, mad at you. They're never fulfilled. They're never happy. And they go to churches. 
But they walk around looking like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice. They're the most unhappy people on the planet. And yet they're saved. I believe they're saved. And then you take the alternative that at somebody that just, they have the Midas touch. I mean, they, 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 everything they touch turns to gold. Every desire that they've ever had, everything that they wanted to do just realizes itself in front of them. And, and you would stop to think from the outside looking at it that God is playing favorites. But the truth of the matter is, God never plays favorites. He just rewards you on where you, your delight is. And the one girl, guy, whatever the case may be, they're not delighting in the Word of God. The other one, the book is everything to them. And I want to say something to you. And the quicker you learn this, the better off you're going to be. There's no greater blessings from God in your life personally or your family or whatever you're trying to do for God. There is no greater blessings that will come that God will bestow on you just because you've fallen in love with a book and you honor that book. One pursues the desires of their heart and never finds it. They struggle all of their life and they, they, get, they get discontented. They get angry. They get cranky. They want to blame everybody. They want to put their blame on everything and everybody else. They'll get hooked up with a crowd that'll give them the wrong book. And they're so stuck in their own ways that they cannot see and understand what I just told you. There's blessings in the Bible that you will not find in anything else. And the blessings that you have are not because of this church. The blessings that you may have in your life aren't because of me or my preaching or my teaching. Or The blessings that you and I have is because God has given us a book. And when you delight yourself in it, there shall be showers of blessings that come down. And I may add to that a great contrast. Light rejected becomes lightning. One will find that rest and the other will never find it. Now the next thing he says is in verse 5. Oh, and here is our issue. Here is our number one issue. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. You know what our biggest problem is, every one of us? Our commitment. Well, I got a King James Bible. Yeah, you're just not committed to it. Well, I got an old past Baptist church. Yeah, but you're not committed to it. You come when it's convenient. You come when somebody else doesn't intervene and mess up your world so you can, don't have to come and hear me. Well, I want to change. I want to change. Oh, how many times I've heard that. Husbands and wives sitting in my office, in my home, individuals. Oh, Bob, we're gonna, I want to change. I want to change. I'll do whatever I got to do. There's one thing that affects change and only one thing. It's your commitment to change. See, you want to change, you just don't have any commitment to it. You want to change, but you want to keep what you want to keep. Change is a commitment to change. 
And notice here it says, commit thy way. At some point in your life, folks, I'm just telling you, you can play with this all you want. You can diddle around with it all you want. And it'll carry you to your grave, maybe. And it'll strip you of any inheritance or any reward. But sooner or later, you have got to change the way you're going. The way we are. And in life, I don't care what they tell you. There's only two ways to go if you're a Christian. You're going to go God's way or you're going to go your way. How can two walk together except they be agreed? The reason why Israel never got God's rest is, is they were always going their way. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10, I already told you that Israel not, did not know his way. They didn't want to know it. And the reason why you and I will never get the rest is because we're continually going our way, the way we want to go. We've never come to the place that we acknowledge him in our lives. I don't mean that you're not aware of him. I don't mean that you're not, I'm saved, and yeah, I believe. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in all thy ways, acknowledge him. Look at verse 6. Here's a good one. We talked about this Thursday night. He shall bring forth the righteous as the light and the judgment as the noonday. God bringing forth your righteousness, bringing forth your maturity, God using you like the noonday sun. And of course, as I told you Thursday night, the reason why he says noonday sun, because that's the highest part of the day where the sun is right overhead. It doesn't get any higher than that. It comes up to that point and then it recedes after that. But the highest point in the day will be when the sun is right overhead at 12 noon. And the highest point of your life when God can Put forth your righteousness to the world as when in your maturity level you get to that point. Your noonday sun. You're at your brightest for God simply because you're at your highest for God. And it's just that simple. Then he says in verse 7, Now so far we were told to fret not, and then we were told to trust. We were told to delight that we were told to commit. Now in verse 7, he says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself of him who prospereth. Now that's a good principle. Just because somebody prospers in their life and has a lot of money and the things that they want doesn't mean it comes from God. The world will prosper and you'll look at it Big churches will prosper, pastors will prosper, Christians will prosper, and you'll think, wow, I, he says, be not envious of them. There's a prospering of the world and worldly Christianity, and there's a prospering of God's people who just love the book and love God and commit their self, trust in him, and delight in him. He says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Verse 9 says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that trust uh, and wait upon the Lord shall inherit uh, the earth. Now, you can't miss that doctrinally. That's Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 10, the Sermon on the Mount, millennially with the nation of Israel. I mean, you can't miss that. But, you know, for you and for me inspirationally, 
It's simply talking about you and I today, right now, getting God's rest in the midst of the battle that you and I are fighting. The rest of the believer. Now, in verse 7 is a key word that will be our determining factor to our rest or not. And it simply says, wait patiently for him. Patience. Now, the key to patience in your life and my life will be the principles and the promises of God, and along with that, acknowledging Him through those principles. I'll say that again. The key to patience in your life and my life will be the principles and the promises of God, and our acknowledging Him through those principles and promises. When you do that, and you acknowledge Him, and you put Him in your, in your life, then you will trust in the promises. Once you build your relationship with the promises of God that you trust them and they begin to work for you, it's going to be like the first time you ate strawberries. They're like Lay's potato chips. Bet you can't eat one. Once you have one promise in your life that God comes through, you get addicted to it. And once you start trusting the promises, you know what happens next? You start to delight in those promises. Now they're yours. You start to realize that God wrote the Bible to you. The person sitting to your left and the right or behind you in front of you got left out. It's your book, not theirs. Caleb's sitting behind Drake. Caleb's now disappointed because he just realized the Bible wasn't for him. It's for Drake. Drake has got a big smile on his face because he just found out it was for him. Now, Caleb's getting ready to bat him alongside of the head and fight him over it because Caleb says it's his book, not Drake's. In other words, everybody in this room should fight the person next to you. If you want to fight about something as Christians, let's fight about who God really gave the Bible to. He gave it to me. I'm sorry about you. Oh, no, Bob, he gave it to me. Okay, let's fight about it, and then we'll go get a cheeseburger, and we'll just split it right down the middle. That's your book. He gave it to you. And he gave it to the person sitting next to you. But the acknowledgement of God in your life about that book is your personal accountability that it's your book. Why would you let someone take that book from you? I'll tell you really simply. Because you never acknowledged him in that book. Trust to you is just a cheap 10-cent word. Delighting in the promises is a figment of your imagination. But when you trust in the promises and you see them work and then you delight yourself in it, it's an automatic process that you're not going back to it and now you're going to commit yourself to it. And only after you trust the promises and you delight in the promises and you commit yourself to the promises, only then can you rest in the promises. You know, the older I get in the Lord the less of a hurry I get in. But I was a young guy, and many of you remember me back in those days, I was going Mach 5 with my hair on fire. I thought I could solve every problem in life. I thought there was no problem too big that I couldn't handle. I thought I had the answer to everything. I mean, I did. I just was stupid in my own immaturity. I used to have a white horse that I used to get on and gallop through the night. Oh, Will, you should have seen me on that horse, buddy. I was a magnitude of, ma- I was, it was bigger than life. 
people in my neighborhood would turn their lights on when they heard the clickety-clack of those big hoofs of that horse going down that cobblestone street on my, my Woodson Drive. I'd turn, that horse would rear up and neigh, and I'd head up 83rd Street past Raytown South. Neighbors' lights would be coming on. Police cars would pull in front of me with the lights on, escorting me to the tragedy that I was on my way to. That horse would pull up in front of the house of issues. That horse would rear back. People would look and it'd turn in a circle. Sometimes I'd paint my face half blue. Pretend I was William Wallace. You know how many times I got off that horse, went in to solve the problems and found out a great truth. A lot of people don't want their problems solved. A lot of people only want to treat the symptoms. They don't solve the problem. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You got issues? We all got issues. And I'll do anything in the world to help you with your problem. But when you come and see me about a problem, we're not going to dance. I'm a Baptist. I don't dance. Too much. I don't dance. I'll go straight to what, I'm not going to treat your symptoms. I'm not going to treat your issues that you think are the problem. We are going to go straight to the problem. We'll cut all the plastic stuff out. We'll get right down to it. Shot that white horse, Will. Took him one day in the backyard, put a 45 up to his head and blew his brains out. Buried him in the backyard. You can still see the mound where he's down in the dirt. I learned very quickly that you can't, you can't get people to do right that don't want to do right. And I realized that, you know what, I had to be patient. And I realized that, uh, you know what, those things are in God's hands, not mine. I realized that I can't make anybody do right. I can only preach the Word of God and do the best I can at putting the truth out. But at the end of the day, you have to decide if you're going to go your way or His way, if you're going to acknowledge Him in all thy ways or not. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about Proverbs chapter 24, verse 14, where it said, to me, is an incredible phrase, getting the knowledge of wisdom. Bible talks about in Philippians 4, 7, the peace that passes all understanding and the rest it brings with it. Colossians 3, verse 15, talks about the peace of God should rule your, your hearts. And the peace that passes all understanding and the rest it brings will not come as you um, try to fix it yourself. It will only come as through the principles you see how God works in any given scenario and you'll let God be God. You will learn what my responsibility is in dealing with situations and you'll learn what, what God's responsibility is. And I'll stay out of His world and he'll allow me to do mine through patience. In the Bible, as in life, God's timing will be everything. You find this at the crucifixion. He kept seeing, my hour has not yet come. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 says he changes the times and the season. God's timing is everything. And through my knowledge of his wisdom, seeing God's hand and timing and everything and being patient, resting in the fact that it's all in his hands and in his timing, and being okay with that because 
I trust him. I learned years ago that God will always work through an established pattern. The Christian life is not a chaotic life. It's not a hang on and just trust God every day and, and see what happens. It's not. It's portrayed that way many times. But it's portrayed that way by men who do not understand the knowledge of his wisdom. Because God will always work through an established pattern in everything that he does. And the Bible completely lays out those patterns. In almost 50 years, I, from Genesis to Revelation, have cataloged every pattern I could see. This is what I give you in people ministry. When we started in Genesis and started walking through the patterns. They form the basis of not only my ministry, but also form the basis of my life. It has to go in a pattern. For instance, the Bible says there are seven things that we are not to be ignorant of. When you look at those, you ask yourself, you begin to see how important they are and what they form is seven distinct patterns that we learn from. Paul says the times and the seasons, I have no need to write unto you. Why did he say that? Because they had the pattern. In the book of Genesis, Genesis is called the book of the beginning. God, uh, God essentially lays out every pattern of where he's going. We talk about the book of Ecclesiastes, an incredible book. The book of Ecclesiastes is nothing more than a pattern of how the world system is going to involve itself. We're in the book of Proverbs right now. The book of Proverbs is an incredible book. It's nothing more than a pattern of a saved man who becomes a wise man. The book of 1 Corinthians is the most screwed up church on the, in all of the Bible. It's nothing more than a pattern of how not to do ministry. 2 Corinthians is the handbook of ministry. They get online. It informs the pattern of how to do ministry. The book of Romans is the pattern for the doctrine of the New Testament church. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Timothy, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus and Philemon. <laughs> pattern for a pastor. The book of Revelation is a pattern of the church history and the future end results for the end times. You know, a public library in any town is an amazing structure, I think. Probably in any given major library, there's over a million, maybe two million books. And you know, they're all the things that man has written that you may learn from. And you go to the library when you want to study, when you want to research, when you want to do something. They have there what is called a Dewey Decimal System. The Dewey Decimal System is a system that was put out that you can find whatever book by the author that you want and then get the information that you need. The Bible's much like that, except it's much simpler. If I didn't know the Bible was the Word of God any other way, I know it, was, it took man, what, 3,000, 5,000, 6,000 years and, uh, and uh, 100 million pieces of literature and he still isn't finished, that he cataloged his truth, and you've got to wade through all of that to find something that you think is truth, when God's Bible, which is truth, is only 66 books, and his Dewey Decimal System is book, chapter, verse. You see, the world has its system. God has his. The world is always much more complicated. One will give you the rest and the peace. The other one, you can never get it. And the souls of life will keep you distressed and troubled. The souls of life will keep you weak and worn out. 
they'll never give you rest. Most churches will keep you busy. They'll entertain you. They'll have restaurants and gymnasiums and racquetball courts and everything that you could ever want except a place of rest. And you'll find having a racquetball court and a fancy restaurant won't solve the problem with your kids when you have to deal with them. It won't fix your marriage when it's about to bust up. You know, in the Bible, there's two great examples of what I would call the two greatest examples of pastors in the Bible. One of them is Saul, one of them is David. One of them is the world's choice, one of them is God's choice. And in a great commentary verse for me, anyhow, on Psalm or Saul, which typifies most pastors today, is found in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 5. And it says, pastors who, which say, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am higher than thou. Now that's the mindset of most pastors today. They'll never see you to solve your problem. They'll always farm you out to some second stringer. Uh, he's the head guy, and he's supposed to have the most knowledge, but you can never get to him because whatever he does in the holy sanctuary where he lives, he'll farm you out to a second stringer someplace that uh, uh, will solve your problem. He won't know your name. He won't know anything about your family. He'll never come over and see your kids' ball games. He'll never do anything except walk into that pulpit, stand up there, and say, look at me. And his words will be, by his own actions, stand by thyself, come not near to me. You want to talk to the pastor, you have to go through the Martin Borman secretary. Most of you don't know who Martin Borman was. He was the most powerful man in the Third Reich. You say more than Hitler? Absolutely. You know why? Because he controlled access to who got to see Hitler. And in most mega churches, there'll be some woman or some guy who is the person you've got to go through, and they decide whether you get to see him or not. <coughs> then you have David. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, and a great picture of what I should be as your pastor. And it says there, and I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. One will feed you and prepare you for the battle with knowledge and understanding. The other will live like a king on your dime and uh, make you weak and defeated. One will create a safe place of rest for you and your family so you can build your life and your family for God. The other will take you uh, and use you uh, to build for him and his millennial inheritance down here and care nothing about you or your family. If you've got an issue, it's a thing where, uh, you know what, uh, he, he doesn't care. He doesn't want to deal with it. Uh, he'll say he cares, but he'll, he won't sit down to take the time. You'll never get to see him. He'll never have time for you. He'll always be too busy doing whatever big-time pastors do. And if you do call him on the phone in an emergency, make sure he's not on the ninth hole. <laughs> Verse 19 says, Fret not thyself because of evil men, neither be thou envious at the wicked. Now here's the problem. The problem with God's people is they never learn to trust they never learn to acknowledge all their ways Him. They never learn to delight. Their delights in everything else. No, they never learn commitment. So all they ever do is fret. 
and in all their fretting because there's no trust, there's no delight, and there's no commitment. They never get any rest. And their whole Christian life is just one bad scenario after another. It's one disappointment after another. It's just one disenchantment after another. It's just one downside after the other. And everything in their life, the whole life, ends in a disaster. They lose their kids. They lose their marriage. They lose their relationship with God. They lose everything. In other words, their candle goes out. Proverbs 24, in this great study on Saul and the man who want to take the greatest possession you have is one of the greatest studies you'll ever take. It's your book. It's your promises. It's for you to trust in, delight in, commit in, but most importantly, to rest in. Well, we'll hold up there.